Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I am your host, Jonathan Strickland, executive producer here at HowStuffWorks, and I love all things tech. And today we have a very special guest, co-host. I mentioned that he would be joining us back on episode 1000. This is episode 1001. Welcome, Ben Bolin, to the show. Thanks for having me over, Jonathan. It's always a pleasure to hang out with you on Tech Stuff. And I'm starting to wonder, quick question, am I the most frequently recurring uh, guest out, now? Out of, uh, yes, you are the most frequently recurring guest. If I were to, I can't count Lauren because she was an actual co-host. True. So I, I have to just count the times that she's been co-host post regular gig. Post-host. Post-host. So I believe if I remember correctly, you were number one and right behind you was Joe McCormick. Oh, yeah. Actually, Scott Benjamin actually was right behind you. Then Joe McCormick was right after him. Oh, man. Well, you know, I think the world of both of those guys. I was interested because we have, you know, as as I think a lot of our fellow Tech Stuff listeners know uh, we interact on numerous shows and we always <laughs> sometimes, have... Sometimes unplanned. Sometimes unplanned. <laughs> and we always have a uh, we always have a heck of a time. And off air earlier, uh, you had invited me to come hang out with you as we explore a topic that is of particular interest to me, you know, because I host a show called Stuff They Don't Want You to Know. Yeah, exactly. Over in episode 1000, I talked about the scientific method. I talked about skeptical thinking, uh, critical thinking, that sort of stuff. And I wanted to do an episode that kind of highlights why that is so important, not just in tech, but, you know, in general, but because this is tech stuff, we're going to look at it from a tech perspective and stuff they don't want you to know. Obviously, you guys cover a lot of topics where there are varying degrees of critical thinking that have been put toward them over the years uh, from from getting down to debunking something all the way to uh, we don't have enough information to draw conclusions, which is totally valid, by the way. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't I don't decry out if someone says, well, I just don't know because I just don't have the information. I think that's a responsible thing. All the way to the credulous, right? People buying into things without the sufficient support necessary to justify that that perspective. And so we're going to talk today about some stories in tech that fall into that category. Now, some of the stuff we're going to cover are uh, outright hoaxes or scams where the person who was perpetrating it did so knowingly. Like they were actually setting out to deceive whether for entertainment purposes, as will be our first entry, (laughs) or for uh, the filthy, filthy lucre, as I like to say. The scratch. The scratch, yeah. Um, (laughs) Or whether it was something where someone thought they were onto something, turns out there was nothing there, but they, they spent a great deal of time pursuing it, sometimes even going so far as to uh, promote the pursuit of this thing without first actually having ascertained that there really was something to talk about. And, and it, it may very well have been a completely honest mistake, an embarrassing one, but an honest one. And uh, the first one I wanted to talk about is one of my favorite stories in all of tech. Now, Ben, you may not know this about me. Uh, when I was a kid, mm-hmm. to the shock of no one who has ever met me, uh, I had a fascination with stage magic. No, not uh, you. Yeah, you know, uh, I'm also a juggler, so. I I know. I'm, I'm glad you got in front of that before I said it. Because 
Because yeah. it's it's true, folks. Uh, at pretty much any time in the How Stuff Works office, you can walk by Jonathan, and if you happen to have like three things, you could say, "Hey, do you want to juggle these?" I've asked you this multiple times. And, you've never said no. Well, <laughs> I consider it a personal <laughs> challenge. Uh, yeah, I actually just the other day was juggling tangerines. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, it just sort of happens. But stage magic, stage magic. So I was fascinated by that as a kid too. I love the theatricality of it. I love the secretive nature of it. I mean, anytime you have any kind of, and you know this from covering stuff they don't want you to know. Anytime you have a group that has kind of an insular, quiet society where they share information with each other but not to anyone on the outside, that level of mystique is incredibly attractive, right? Mm -hmm. Like you just sit there and think, I want to be in the room where it happens if I were quoting (laughs) Lin-Manuel Miranda. So – This first example is the Turk. This was – ultimately, this was meant to be a magic trick. It was not necessarily meant to be just a scam. You know, it was meant to be an entertainment, a diversion. Mm -hmm. And it was the brainchild of Wolfgang von Kempelen, who was a civil servant in 18th century Austria-Hungary. He was uh, in service to the Empress Maria Theresa. So Maria Theresa – uh, good old Mary. She has a magician come by. You know, he pulls some rabbits out of hats, saws some courtiers into whatever. And she turns to Wolfgang and says, Oh, Wolfie, wasn't that just the most entertaining magic you ever saw? And Wolfgang's like, I can do better than that. Hmm. And she well, said, Really? And he yeah. Said, he said, Yeah. And uh, <laughs> she said, Prove it. You got six months. So he goes off. And for six months, he's working on creating an illusion. And his illusion is the Turk. Now, what it looks like is a big cabinet. I'm talking like like something that you would see like a sideboard. It's about waist high. It's like a desk. Yeah, yeah, yeah kind of like a desk. And then behind it stands, appears to stand anyway, a human figure dressed as a Turk, uh, dressed that way because in the 1700s in Europe – People thought that if you were going to be doing magic, then you should be dressed in Turkish attire because that's where magic happened. Yeah. Enlightened. So (laughs) he's dressed as a Turk. He even had a long clay pipe in one hand uh, upon first being unveiled. And on the top of this cabinet or desk is a chessboard. Von Kemplin brought this out to show off to the court of Teresa, and he opens up the cabinet on one side. It reveals all these different clockwork gears. He opens up the other side. There's a little cushion in there, but there's not really anything else. He even holds a candle on the opposite side of the cabinet to let light show through to show that there's not a mirror or anything Mm -hmm. in the middle, right? Closes it all up, puts the, uh, the cushion under one arm of the Turk, and then invites someone to come up and play chess. So at that stage, You get uh, one of the courtiers. He comes up there and plays a game of chess. And within half an hour, the Turk, moving on its own accord, this this automaton clockwork man. Right. The the, uh, – semblance, the mechanical hand is making the actual movement. Yes, it's actually moving. The arm itself moves over. The hand grips the piece, moves it to the appropriate square. And uh, the only instruction – Von Kemplin gave to the courtier was, make sure whenever you place the piece down, you do so squarely in the center of 
the square you're moving to because uh, that's I've aligned this machine so that it will go precisely at those those coordinates. You know, if you were offside, it would miss because it's it's totally clockwork. And it makes sense from the audience perspective at this point. They go, oh, okay, that's how machines work. Yeah. Well, I mean, you think about it, you're like, well, if you these days we would call it programming, right? Right. You would program the machine to be able to move a piece, but you wouldn't waste time programming the machine to pick up places where a piece would not be, right? right? So the Turk is uh, victorious. It wins. And it's able to beat most people within half an hour. Mm. Uh, it would go on to great acclaim, both in Europe and beyond. Uh, von Kemplin would eventually, you know, he would pass away and it ended up in the belongings of another uh, entrepreneur who used it to uh, bring it to exhibitions mm-hmm. and to kind of make a make almost like a like a PT Barnum-esque kind of show out of it for sure and uh, famous people played against the Turk uh, Ben Franklin mm-hmm. played a game uh, did not win um, Napoleon Bonaparte famously tested the Turk so the story with Bonaparte is that he played a game and uh, purposefully made an illegal move and uh, just testing to see what is this Turk going to do if I make an illegal move. And he did it a couple of times, did right? Did it three times. And on the third time, the Turk, uh, which could also move its eyes back and forth, it could move its head a little bit, mm-hmm. and then it could move one arm, uh, swept its arm across the board, knocking all the pieces off. <laughs> and then, of course, there's like, there's that, you can just imagine, like, if you're thinking of it in movie terms, there's the hush that falls over the crowd. Mm-hmm. And everyone's waiting to see what happens. And then Napoleon just starts laughing and everyone's like, oh, ha, 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 ha. Oh, wasn't that funny? When it was totally not funny a second earlier. Like no one was sure if someone was going to lose their head. Mm-hmm. So other people who who witnessed it would include uh, Edgar Allan Poe, who was convinced that there was a human controlling this clockwork mechanism. But he didn't – he wasn't sure exactly how at first. He started to think about how it might be possible, even drew up some, uh, some pamphlets about it. Mm-hmm. And – more or less, we believe he got it, you know, kind of right. He figured it out. Figured huh? it out more or less. Uh, it became the basis of detective stories in a way, his approach. But ultimately, yes, it was a trick. It was not clockwork. It was not some sort of device that you would wind up and then it could actually witness a move, process that information, and then make a move on its own. It was more or less a very complex puppet. Mm-hmm. And from what we can gather, based upon the drawings von Kempelen left behind, uh, the operator was probably hidden in the bottom of the cabinet. It was like a false bottom. Okay. So you have a very thick bottom of this cabinet, which was on casters, so you could roll it everywhere. No one right. knew how heavy it was. And then once you close the cabinet up, they could slide out from underneath and then operate all the pieces from inside. They use levers to move the arms. I'm not entirely certain what the mechanism was so that they could actually view where the pieces were on the board. Yeah, that's the one of the most interesting parts. And it has to be, I don't know, in the in the reproduction mm-hmm. pictures we can see, it, it it feels like it would the simplest answer would be some sort of one-way mirror kind of thing. Yeah. Where they could see 
the which space. pieces. The only problem there is that, I mean, you have to pay really close attention and make sure you know which piece is what, right? And how can you differentiate, you know, if they all look like just yeah, a, a peg? Just, yeah, a peg. Right. Uh, would there be some sort, I was thinking about this, would there be some sort of marking on the bottom that they could see that I mean, says like it, king or pawn? If you are a true chess, like, genius. Oh, that's true. You could just keep track of which piece was moved and then you know what piece it was because you know what the starting position was. Yeah. Although uh, in more recent demonstrations, the way this has worked is uh, John Gahn, who created a uh, a replica we mm-hmm. just mentioned. Uh, he has a replica of this that's in Los Angeles, California. Uh, he apparently has a workshop that is phenomenal to visit and no, you can't go there. And I've, I've, I'm so upset. <laughs> I'm so upset because it looks amazing, uh, but it looks like it's an invitation only kind of thing. Like it's it's sort of like a magician's museum, not a, not a museum of magic, but a museum for magicians. And you have to be sort of in kind of in the crowd, I think, because you know, he he designs world. illusions for some of the most famous magicians out there, like Chris Angel and David Copperfield and folks like that. Wait, the mind freak. Yes. Yeah, John Gahn, John Gahn has designed some of the most uh, uh, elaborate mm-hmm. illusions. But he built this replica, and uh, in his versions where he's shown it off, he's had a book of famous end games. And, a, mm-hmm. and he invites a chess master to come up and play against the Turk. And the chess master reaches in, looks at the book, picks out an end game. They set up the board for that particular end game and they play from there. Well, if it's an, if it's an end game that's out of a book and you, I'm assuming you're not doing a, a forced uh, a choice upon the chess master, they have open choice. Sure. Because you know, there are magic tricks where There you, are ways to do it. Yeah. You, it's, a card force is a well-known way. I mean, there's lots of different ways of doing this, but it's a well-known way of making it look like someone's chosen a card, but in fact, they've picked the card you've already chosen for them. Makes makes finding a card a lot easier when you already know what it's going to be before the trick even starts. So I uh, don't know if it was like that or not, but if it, uh, presuming it wasn't, then there must be some way to to see the board beyond just uh, knowing which knowing which squares are occupied. Because mm-hmm. if it's an end game, that means not all the pieces are already. Are, are there, right? Only right. certain pieces are going to be there. And they're not at their starting position. Exactly. So then you would have to have some way of being able to see what the board was. Now, you might have some sort of periscope kind of thing built into the mm-hmm. uh, the figure so that you're using mirrors to get a look that way. Uh, but no matter what, it must have also taken quite a bit of dexterity to move the arm. Like, I just think of the claw games from, yeah. like, amusements, uh-huh. where it's something along those lines of trying to move the arm exactly. Because... Based upon the the images, the the inner workings of the Turk were in fact uh, like catgut ropes and, and and pulley systems and things. It wasn't yeah. it wasn't like it was a wooden suit that you could somehow slip into. No, and the quarters are cramped in that cabinet. Yeah. Even if they get out of the false bottom, yeah, it makes me think that. It makes me imagine that there must have been some down on his or her luck chess master who accepted this strange occupation. Right? Yeah, yeah. And and the other thing that's entirely fascinating is that even today, to your point, we don't know everything about the Turk. We just know that we know that there's a hoax, right? Yeah. And I wanted to ask you, were those gears entirely ornamental? 
I'm pretty sure most of them were, actually. I think most of the gears were meant to give it this look of clockwork. Science. Right. That's what yeah. happened. It's, it's, yeah, it's, it's all the, it's, it's scientific theater is mm-hmm. what it is. You know, mm-hmm. we think of uh, like, like security theater, you know, the idea sure. that you put on the, the appearance of security and that will be enough to mollify people into mm-hmm. thinking they are in a secure situation. Same sort of thing with uh, with this. You have the trappings of authority and that convinces people, oh, yeah, no, this is on the up and up. And again, that is a way of disarming people from being critical thinkers, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the original Turk, by the way, was destroyed in a fire in the 1800s, which is why we have to, you know, there's a replica and it's based off of the, what little, what few designs managed to survive but uh it's it's sort of a best guess that that's how the original worked um john gone did say that von kemplen was incredibly prescient and created elements of illusion that a lot of historians didn't think were really invented until a century after that so it's pretty pretty interesting that the guy the guy really was a a pretty clever inventor and um yeah Uh, and again i don't necessarily believe von Kempelen himself wanted to put the Turk forward as a legitimate, this is a clockwork chess player. It was more like this, is more in the style of a magic trick where you don't acknowledge that it's a trick because that takes the theatricality out of it. Hmm. But you're also not trying to go around claiming that you can build clockwork people. Right. You know? This this feels like it was much more of a... Um a coup in the court for him. Yeah. You know, just it's an attempt to show off his intelligence and acumen and nobody is genuinely convinced that there is some sentient thing made out of clockwork gears that is better at chess than you, meatbag. I mean, it's it's a possibility some of them were only because clockwork was such a relatively new uh, type of technology in the 1700s. I didn't think about that. Maybe you're right. You know, you're also talking about the very – just before the the Industrial Revolution, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, It's post-Renaissance. It's now Enlightenment. You're talking about people wondering where the limits are to ingenuity. And when you have interesting inventions being proposed and, and coming out so rapidly in such a, such a, a, a compact timeline, yeah. then you could kind of see where someone could be a little credulous and think maybe, there, maybe someone did figure out a way. Like after all, chess is based off math, right? So if it's, <laughs> just, if it's just processing math in some way – now keep in mind this is 100 years before the difference engine or the analytical engine. It's before Babbage but still. Right. You can kind of imagine that sort of possible theory going in someone's head. And Babbage played the Turk too, didn't he? He did and in fact uh, he also – was pretty darn sure the Turk was being controlled by a person. Mm-hmm. However, he thought, huh, a machine that can process information. That sounds interesting. And of course, Babbage would later go on to first propose the difference engine, which would uh, eventually be abandoned. And then he would propose an even more uh, glorious machine, the analytic engine, mm-hmm. that would would have been the first mechanical computer if it had ever been completed during his lifetime. And of course, I can't mention Babbage without also mentioning Ada Lovelace, Lord Byron's daughter. Mm-hmm. Ada Lovelace was a mathematician who worked with Babbage, and she even proposed using his machine to uh, to use uh, 
mathematics to express different ideas, not just mathematical ideas, but using math to express things like poetry and music and Mm -hmm. imagery. She was talking about coding Mm -hmm. in a time well before uh, electromechanical computers were created, let alone electronic computers. So phenomenal uh, people, and you could argue that at least some of their ingenuity was sparked by this fake clockwork chess player. And lest we forget, I feel like we need to emphasize this one more time before we move on. One of the great things about the Turk is it was not made for malevolent purposes. Right. It, it was, was it was not made it was not made to to steal money. It was not made as a, a cash grab type thing, unlike some of the other ones we're going to be talking about. One last thing I will mention before we transition to one that definitely was more of a cash grab. Uh-huh. Uh, so the Turk also lends its name to something that Amazon has. Yes. So Amazon, yeah. Amazon has the Turk. They have the mechanical Turk, which is uh, Amazon's the Turk is where they use human beings to process requests, certain information, uh, because it just from a financial side made more sense to employ human beings to do the work than to create computer systems that could do the work. And because it's humans who are doing the work, but it's through an interface that is more commonly associated with things like search engines, mm-hmm. uh, they call it the they they refer to the Turk because it's actually a human that's that's powering the thing, uh, which I thought was pretty clever. Now, the first one we're going to talk about where someone's actually trying to to scam folks would be uh, Charles Redheffer and his proposed perpetual motion machine. Now, perpetual motion is let's 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 just go ahead and shoot this right out of the gate. Perpetual motion is as far as we can tell impossible, impossible based upon our our knowledge of the laws of thermodynamics. So, with the laws of thermodynamics, that that explains things like uh, energy within a system, right? If you have a system, a closed system, so there's nothing coming into it, there's nothing going out of it. No energy is going to be created or destroyed. It cannot, you can't just create or destroy energy. You can convert from one kind of energy to another. Mm -hmm. You can convert matter into energy and vice versa if you have, you know, like nuclear bombs and stuff. But in a system, you can't create or destroy energy. If you set a system into motion, let's say it's just a wheel. Let's say we've got a wheel on an axle. Great. We start spinning that wheel. That wheel is eventually going to stop spinning. And the reason being is that without additional energy put into that wheel, friction is going to result in more energy being lost to the system than is uh, needed to keep the wheel spinning, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're going to have pieces rubbing against each other. That's friction. You end up losing energy in the form of heat. Again, energy is not destroyed. It's just converted from kinetic energy into heat energy. So first and second law of thermodynamics. Yes. So the heat dissipates. That means you have less energy in your system than when you started because your system's not truly closed. It's open. It's Mm -hmm. open to everything, right? Uh, so eventually the wheel will slow down and stop because of this drain on the system. So uh, in 1813, Charles Redheffer says, hey, I, I made one. I made a perpetual motion machine mm-hmm. that if you if you start this sucker, it will just keep on going forever and ever and ever. And that flies in the face of the laws of thermodynamics. Now, if, uh, by the way, uh, 
you can lose energy not just through friction. You right. can lose energy through sound too. Mm. Sound is energy, right? Mm. Sound is vibration. So if you have anything vibrating against anything else, that's energy that you are losing from your, your system. Uh, if you have your, your system hooked up to something like a battery or a power outlet, congratulations. That's not a perpetual motion machine because it's continuously drawing energy from a source, and right? And that energy is finite as it well. Is. It is. Uh, it's, it's more finite with a battery than with a power outlet. But ultimately, it's finite with both. I mean, even so, this is the part of the conversation where some of us in the audience might say, well, what about something that's solar powered? Technically, also speaking, on a grand scale, solar power is also drawing from a finite energy source. Well, it's not even, you don't even have to go technically. There's a thing called nighttime. Uh, yes, and you're not there drawing we go. solar energy then, right? Uh, so yeah, but that's but in in those cases, it, it can't be perpetual motion because it's actually drawing energy from an outside right. source. It's right? an open system at that point. Yeah, unless you're arguing my system also includes the sun. <laughs> like, <laughs> that's my that's, perpetual motion like, machine. I've patented it. No one else can use it now. Also, would you like to buy a bridge? <laughs> yeah, it's on the sun. Uh, so. <laughs> Red Heifer, he claims he's made a perpetual motion machine mm -hmm. and he puts it on display in Philadelphia and he starts trying to get people to invest money saying, hey, you know, I, I think we can use this for lots of different purposes. He would bring people up to his workshop in Philadelphia, show it off and say like, uh, hey, don't you want to give me some money so that I can continue my work and, and we can transform the world? Now, again, this is in the 19th century, this is, again, industrial revolution. A lot of people are wondering what might be possible. So he was able to get quite a few people fooled on here. But there were some skeptics who were saying, you know, this doesn't sound right. This sounds hinky. Also, he's charging admission, too. Yes. Just like, to, like, look at it from, like, through a barred window yeah, or something. Although he wouldn't charge the ladies. Well, or he I wouldn't mean, charge them as much. Classic red heifer, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's <laughs> classic red heifer. So he would charge people to come up and take a look at, and uh, eventually, mm -hmm. as he's showing this off, people are starting to ask some pretty tricky questions. And he thinks, you know what? I think I have a good thing going, but uh, it's not. It's it's limited, so I better get out while the getting's good. And he relocates to New York City. Oh, wow. This reminds me of the uh, monorail episode of The Simpsons. It's very much like the monorail episode. <laughs> I hear those things are awful loud. It floats as softly as a cloud. So, 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 so yeah. So he goes to, he goes to New York City uh -huh. and he continues this perpetual motion machine concept claim. Yeah. claim. It's, it's, it's a larger version of the one that he showed off in Philadelphia. And the one in Philadelphia, apparently the perpetual motion machine was connected to a smaller device. And he claimed the perpetual motion machine was powering the smaller device. It was essentially not just perpetual motion, but free energy. Oh, like it, I was, see. it was actually generating enough energy to power a separate device. But a journalist looking at it said, hang on, that device looks like it actually, from the wear and tear I can view from mm. where I'm at, it looks like that little device is actually providing the energy to move the big perpetual motion machine. It's it's the, the relationship is the opposite of what we've been told. Mm -hmm. And that something is going, pouring energy into the small thing, which is then making the big thing turn. And that was too close to the truth, so Red Heifer moved up to New York City, but then he decided to go bigger. He decided not to use the same methodology and uh, he thought he was in pretty good shape. He was ready to uh, to defy people to say, "Hey, you're you're 
you've got shenanigans going on. And uh, then Robert Fulton paid him a visit. You're getting to my favorite part of this story, by the way. <laughs> this is great. So Robert Fulton, um, engineer, inventor, very smart man. He says, this sounds like a lot of hogwash to me. So he goes to see what the heck is up. And he sees that... Uh, he sees that this device is moving and he suspects that the machinery to make it move would perhaps be located outside of the room they are in, that mm -hmm. it, in fact, was a very complicated system. So he starts looking around and he discovers that there is a cord of cat gut that connects the device running up through a beam in the wall upstairs. And so then he decides, well, let's go see what's upstairs. And he mm -hmm. goes on upstairs and there he finds, according to the story, a cranky old man. Mm -hmm. And I mean that literally because he's turning a crank with one hand while just casually eating some bread with his other hand. Yeah. Because he's there all day. <laughs> yeah. You can't, you know, he doesn't get a lunch break. He's got to keep turning that crank. Mm -hmm. So that literally this perpetual motion machine was in fact just a hand-cranked device being powered by a grouchy old guy in the attic. Mm -hmm. And uh, so Red Heifer eventually was, I mean, he had to close up there, but he wasn't done. In 1820, he was able to secure a patent for a, per, a perpetual motion machine because, newsflash folks, uh, there have been numerous occasions where people have submitted patent. Uh, applications for for perpetual motion machines or free energy or free energy that's another good example and the patent office bless their hearts sometimes they get claims that are apparently beyond their their ken mm -hmm. they are unable to grasp the nature of it and so they end up granting a patent for something that should not have been patented because it was impossible. And that seems to be the case here. However, uh, we don't really know because that, guess what? It Just like the Turk, mm -hmm. <laughs> that patent burned up in a fire. There was a big fire in the U.S. Patent Office in 1836. And all the patents that had been filed there were essentially lost, including this one, which was in the, like it was still somewhere like in patent 3000. Like that's how early it was in the wow. patent system. Like we're in the millions now. Mm -hmm. So, And also, uh, we have to ask ourselves, what happened? What happened to Red Heifer? Don't know. He kind of disappeared off the face of the earth. I really did search, too, to see if there was any record I could find. You know what I would like to speculate, Jonathan? What's that? I'd like to speculate that he changed his name. <laughs> That's the most realistic explanation. I mean, you know, if mm. we're talking, this is definitely before a surveillance state, right? In right. The, in the 1800s. So maybe he changed his name to, uh, I, I, I don't know, Rarles Chedhofer and struck out for California. Sounds good to me. You know what also sounds good to me, Ben? What's taking that? a taking a quick break to thank our sponsor. All right, we're back and Ben, we have another similar story to the one we just told. We just talked about a perpetual motion machine. Let's talk about uh, a machine that to this day there are still people who believe that this device, in fact, worked the way the inventor claimed it worked, even though skeptical thinking would lead us to believe that the, such claims were probably nonsense. I also want to advance one thing, just one note. Sure. That's occurred to me. This example and our previous two cases 
all have this running thread of Pennsylvania. Yeah. In them. Have you noticed? I mean, of course yeah, you know that. I, well, because the Turk burned down in Philadelphia. Yes, right. Yeah, and then Red Heifer did his his uh, demonstrations in Philadelphia. Yeah, Pennsylvania is a wacky place. <laughs> Uh, people who are familiar with a character called the Quizster might know that I went through a whole bunch of these and dismissed them as possible uh, Quizster segments for a Philadelphia planned segment because um, there's so much weird stuff. But then I got to use it anyway because you're on this show. So yeah, this is gr- okay. Is this where some of this is coming from? Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. When <laughs> I was awesome. when I was researching for a Philadelphia segment for uh, for the Quizster, and I was like, oh no, wait, this this go really well because I had already planned also on doing one about the hoaxes and flim flam. Yeah, and stuff. now this this example is. Pretty- particularly fascinating to me because I was pretty unfamiliar with it. Yes, this is the Keeley Motor Company, and the founder was John Ernst Worrell Keeley. He was born in 1837 in Pennsylvania, and uh, something that should immediately set up warning flags in anyone's mind is when you find out that a job someone has held in their previous experience included Carnival Barker. Your your carny prejudice is tearing this company apart. <laughs> I listen, I'm with it and for it. I uh I know I know my I know my my carny lang- lingo. Um yeah, so carnivals are really all about this idea of creating an illusion and mm. an experience and there's always something there's a different reality that's underneath that experience, right? Yeah. But that's all about the 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 allure of the carnival. There's something not just magical about it, but kind of almost like dangerous about it, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I would argue that kind of experience, if you are in fact someone who has worked in one of those sort of carnivals, would be it's ideal for setting you up to do things like run a run a scam. Sure. Because you start to learn what people are looking for. All you have to do is play to the stuff that people want to believe in. Because if they want to believe in it, mm-hmm. then you don't have to try as hard mm-hmm. to to keep the inner workings of what you're doing secret, right? They they are already they're ready to buy in. They want to go on that ride. Uh, it's like people who go to a, a magic show. Most people who go to a magic show, apart from you know occasional jerks, they go there because they want to be entertained. Mm-hmm. They want to be fooled. They want to have the illusion that something that is impossible actually happened while they were there and they saw it and it's amazing. That's what scam artists count on too. They say, well, if you know what people want to hear and you tell them that, you can get them to pay you a lot of money. Important difference being that scam artists are doing non-consensual works of illusion. Yes. And they are uh, you know, using any method they can to pull the wool over the eyes mm-hmm. of their their marks, to use carny lingo. <laughs> uh, so he decided to create a what he claimed was a special engine, uh, which he gave various names throughout its life. The hydropneumatic pulsating vacuum engine is a good one. Legit. The liberator, which <laughs> just sounds like a firework. Here in the U.S.? Yeah, I also love – okay, so I I love this when you were informing me about a a couple of these things off air. What I love about this one is we're getting straight into the pseudoscience jargon, which is my favorite part of these sorts of inventions. It makes me also think a lot about steampunk. You know, Mm. one of the things that I love about people who are big into steampunk, it's not as – like it kind of went through its heyday. There's still people who are very much fans of it, but it's not nearly as – omnipresent as it was maybe a decade ago. Sure. Uh, but 
one of the things I loved is that people would spend so much time and effort coming up with fanciful names to describe their technologies. And Ether is almost always in there. <laughs> Dynamo might be in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. But it's a way of using these, these vaguely scientific-sounding terms and trying to give legitimacy to something just based upon a name. Uh, He had claimed that he had created some sort of motor that could run off of a mysterious energy that uh, had to do with molecular interactions. He said that, you know, water would supply the molecules, and then you would use these vibrations from, like, tuning forks and stuff to transform the molecules in some way that would give off this ethereal energy that his motor would be able to harness. Mm-hmm. And so he would hold demonstrations of his motor in his workshop. And he had sort of like a what he thought of as a, a working prototype that could actually do work. Like this thing can create mechanical action and it can do stuff. Mm-hmm. But it itself is not practical for a product yet. It's just it just shows the fundamentals of the the science is what he would argue. So he needed investments in order to be able to go into the next phase and actually produce something that could be used for practical applications. And he got a lot of investments because people wanted to believe in it. People like Astor poured money into this. Really? Yeah. So you had you had some very famous, very rich people saying, well, if this is true, yeah. if you can create an, a motor that runs off water, then that is transformative. It'll It'll be an enormous boon. It's like solving the energy crisis before we can have an energy crisis. Sure. And so they start investing in money. And by the 1880s, investors were starting to get a little antsy because they were not seeing any progress being made in producing an actual practical motor. And Keeley was so good at getting people to believe that the thing he had made was working that it just seemed like it was just around the corner having a a a product, right, based off that same thing. Because he had already proven, according to him, the principles of what he said was going on. And so if, in fact, what he was saying was true, he should be able to create a practical product. But they didn't see any. So uh, Keeley kept on holding demonstrations, but he never produced anything that could be actually put to work. Um and he would just, you know, show this device moving apparently on its own accord through pouring water into a thing, vibrating a tuning fork, and then it starts moving. Mm-hmm. But there was never any uh, indication that there was, like, something that would ever actually come out of it. And then he died in 1898, having never produced anything that was really working. And some of his investors were really kind of wondering what happens now because the Keeley Motor Company still existed – There were still people working there, but Keeley himself was dead. The Philadelphia Press held an investigation, and they discovered evidence in his workshop that suggested he had been using a – he had been using compressed air to create the force to move the machinery, not this vibration, water, molecular thing. And the Keeley Motor Company denied that that was true. They said, no, 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 this is – that the investigation is wrong. But seeing as how no one has ever created an etheric motor based off his claims, Mm -hmm. uh, I think that is pretty good evidence to suggest that perhaps the more logical explanation that there was a compressed air uh, 
device that was providing the mechanical power makes more sense. I mean, Occam's razor, right? Yeah. What, what's more likely that something we know works mm. provided the action or something that no one has been able to prove even exists did it? Well, that's the problem too, because, you know, we don't want to burst everybody's bubble here, but the big problem with this claim is that after his death, there was unfettered access to his workshop. Yeah. Which means that if such a thing existed at all in any shape, fashion, or form, it would be there. Now and there, it wasn't. There are still people to this day who say that we're just on the verge of getting one of these motors working. I was about to say get this motor running, head out on the highway. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so there are people who are still devotees of Keeley, despite the the uh, investigation. You know what? I would love to see a working model. Go I would love to see a working model to too. Yeah. Tech stuff at HowStuffWorks.com. We'll put it right next to the giant wooden gear that we have that we haven't yet. Uh, oh yeah. Haven't yet yet decoded. Uh, our next one is uh, one I'm, uh, you've heard of InRays before, right? Or did oh, yeah. I, all right, so Rene Blondlo. Mm -hmm. um, in 1903, we had this f physicist, Rene Blondlo, who was experimenting with X-rays. And he was pretty sure while he was doing the experiment that something impossible had happened. So he had X-rays and he was firing them through an, a, a quartz prism. And the quartz prism should not have been able to redirect X-rays. He mm -hmm. had he had already done the same experiment using an electric field, which could deflect X-rays. Okay, like he, he was he was specifically kind of doing a control group kind of thing. So he has a detector on one side, and the detector has a little metal filament that lights up if X-rays strike it. Okay, so he shoots at the electric field. The electric field deflects some of the X-rays. The detector lights up, and he says, "Ha! So electric fields can deflect X-rays." Well, now I'm just going to do it with this quartz. Uh, reflector, which shouldn't, x-rays should just go right through it. They right. won't bounce off of it. And so he's doing this, but he said from the corner of his eye, he saw the filament light up. So just out of the periphery of his vision. Mm -hmm. And so he said, well, x-rays wouldn't do that. So therefore, I must have discovered a brand new type of radiation. It can't be x-rays, but it made the, the filament light up. So it behaves sort of like x-rays. Mm -hmm. I'm going to call them n-rays. And he named it after Nancy, a uh, town in France where he grew up. I feel like he should have gone the whole kit and caboodle and called them Nancy Rays. Nancy Rays, yeah. Uh, I was wondering why he didn't call them R Rays. I guess it's because it'd be Rays. <laughs> uh, so he would later on say, because you know he would do experiments. He said, "Oh well, it doesn't work if you're looking right at the filament." Which I mean, come on, yeah. But again, I don't think he was – it seems to me he was sincere in his belief. Yeah, because he's not hes not trying to bilk people. No. He, he thought he had discovered something monumental. And this was a time, again, when people were making such discoveries. I mean, radiation had only been discovered just a couple of decades earlier. So it was not that big of a uh, leap to think, oh, I found something that we hadn't heard about just now. Like, it's not unreasonable at all. No, you know, we just discovered radio waves, electromagnetic radiation. Like This is a time when people are finding this kind of stuff. But when it gets to the point where he says, oh, you can only see it when it's in the corner of your vision, uh, some of the physicists or physicians rather out there said, there's, you can end up, because of the way perception works, you can end up 
imagining that you're seeing things out of the corner of your eye when really there's nothing there. Mm-hmm. And they th- said that's a far more likely explanation that he thought he saw the indicator light up because why would it not light up if you're looking right at it? What What's the logic there? Why would a detector not light up if you're looking at it dead on, but it right. will light up if you're if you're looking at it from the side of your eye? That just doesn't make sense. I mean, there's any explanation of that would fly in the face of what we know about the human eye. Yeah. Basically. And then uh, to make matters more complicated, there were several scientists in France who claimed that they were able to replicate the experiments, but no one else anywhere in the world could do it, Mm -hmm. which led a lot of scientists to say either the scientists in France are super extra special or they are deluding themselves. And then uh, Robert W. Wood ended up visiting Blonlow's laboratory to investigate the matter. And uh, first he had Blonlow call out when the N-rays were fluctuating as he as uh, Wood would move an opaque lead screen in or out of the pathway of the supposed N-rays. And Rene could only say something when he thought he saw a change in the rays. Right, right. right. He, He's looking for fluctuations in the readings, right? So he could not observe the movements. No, right. He so so again, if you're thinking about like a magic trick, mm-hmm. uh, which again, Rene was not trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. He legitimately thought he ha- he was onto something. You have him in one space, you have Wood in the other space. They cannot see each other. And then Wood's job is just to move this lead sheet. And in and out of the path. And if it if it does so, it's supposed to create these fluctuations, which then Rene Blundlow should be able to see in his in his area and then call out when those fluctuations happen. And Wood said he was wrong 100 percent of the time. Like he never got he never called out a fluctuation when one should have happened, and he called out fluctuations when nothing was going on. Just not even by accident. Right. But right. to to make it even more uh blatant, there was a point where uh, Wood ended up working with a piece of equipment Blonde Lowe had said was uh, uh, would allow you to split N-rays up into various uh, spectra. Mm-hmm. And you'd be able to read off different wavelengths. And it had an aluminum prism in it. So you would shoot the N-rays at the aluminum prism. It would prism. It would then split the N-rays up and you could read the different wavelengths. Presumably. And so, pres- presumably. <laughs> and so Blonde Lowe, has the N-rays going. Yeah. He reads off the wavelengths. And Wood says, oh, could you do that again? I need to write those down. So Blonlow goes to look at the wavelengths. Meanwhile, Wood surreptitiously removes the aluminum prism, which means that there is now no mechanism there for those wavelengths to get split up, according to Blonlow, right? He said the whole purpose of the prism there is it splits the N-rays up into these wavelengths. And then Blonlow's magically able to read off all the wavelengths because he believes he's really seeing something. Mm-hmm. And Wood says, there's literally no way for this to work the way you said it was going to work. Right. Because I removed the part that would have done it. Due to your own, uh, the constraints of your own design, right? Yep. And so then Blonlow was, uh, you know, he kind of quietly went back to teaching and there were some reports that – actually, there are a couple of different reports that were that have repeated the story that Blonlow, uh went mad and died a few years later out of, uh, out of frustration. It's just so sad, man. But I read a report that said, no, he taught in France for many years and died decades later. So 
apparently there was a story that circulates. So you have to be skeptical even right. of the stories that circulate of these people. But I, I think I, not, not even with that story in particular, what I think is sad about it is that he was sincerely trying to advance scientific progress. And maybe there was a little bit of an ego wrapped up in this. Mm -hmm. The idea of the idea that I, Rene, am the grand discoverer of this new groundbreaking thing. Um, but, you know, it's it doesn't sound like he was trying to con anybody. It right. sounds like he just conned himself. And again, that's that's where he was not really employing critical thinking Absolutely and skepticism not. because he, he saw something he wanted to believe, that he had discovered something novel. And that is a very powerful feeling, right? Yeah, like like you, you joined the giants, right? Yeah, like not, William Reich and Orgone, which we have to mention at this point. Okay, right? And yes. you've already mentioned this, I, I think, in previous episodes. I, right? I don't know that I've ever talked about Orgone in a previous episode, mo mostly because you get to a point in those, in those stories where uh, – you it gets so weird mm -hmm. that it's difficult to dig yourself back out again. Oregon, by the way, gets into a lot of psychosexual stuff, and right. it's very much connected to that. So we um, can, yeah, you can find out more about Oregon. It's it's similar to this story because it's similar to the Inray story because it's the story of an inventor who believes that they have found some sort of uh, some sort of fundamental energy force that yeah. has yet to be observed. And this was, uh, Orgone uh, was described as an esoteric energy by its, whoosh, whoosh, those are my air quote sounds, yeah. its whoosh, whoosh, discoverer, yeah. uh, William Reich, or Willem Reich. And the problem with it is exactly as you said, Jonathan, there was a lot of stuff that, depended upon the subjective opinions mm -hmm. of the participants and uh, there were a lot of increase there was there was what I call claim creep yeah. which is it starts out as a pretty narrowly defined thing yep and then it has more and more and more implications and then right. it goes into psychosexual power and it's all like well maybe this didn't work because you didn't clap your hands and believe Hard enough. It reminds me a lot of the uh, of the. I'm sure you've seen videos of it of demonstrations of supposed uh, kung fu masters or karate masters masters of the martial arts who have mastered their chi to a point where yes. they just make a gesture and people fall over, and uh, yeah. and it becomes sort of this shared delusion between the mm -hmm. person who is making the movements and the people who claim that they were actually knocked over by it. Uh, it also falls into that category of people who go under hypnosis for like a stage hypnotist, how they are willing to go along with something because there is this expectation for an outcome. Social and pressure. Too. It's a social pressure, right? You, you're being watched by people who want to see an outcome. That's a very powerful motivator. Mm. It would be, it would take a special kind of person to go up on stage and defiantly not do the things that were asked of him or her to do mm -hmm. because you know that's not what the audience wants to see. And now uh, this excellent point brings us to a um, brings us to a pivot, I would say in today's mm -hmm. show because yeah. up to now we've been up to now we've been exploring the often, I'll say it, often hilarious stories of, hoaxers or deluded people mm -hmm. who were still being, you know, entertaining and at the worst, 
committing financial scams. They might be taking money from mostly from people who have enough money to lose. Right. Mostly. Right. And, but and, we're about to yeah. transition into some much more serious matters. And we'll get to that in just a moment. But first, we're going to take another quick break to thank our sponsors. Now, this next story is one I have talked about on Tech Stuff before. Uh, It's one that I point to frequently when I talk about why skepticism is so important because it can, like, like we said earlier, it can be a matter of sort of entertainment, but it's also a matter of life or death in some situations. And uh, I've talked about these guys before, but uh, I want to talk about fake bomb detectors because this was a big story uh, a few years ago, almost a decade ago now, and I covered it on Tech Stuff even got to the point where someone sent me one of the detectors that was the originator of this whole thing, which was, uh, I think it was just meant to be a novelty gift mm-hmm. where it was called the gopher and it was meant to be a golf ball detector. <laughs> and all it is, it's it's just a plastic handle and there is a telescoping antenna that you, on one corner of the plastic handle ha- is mounted on a little swivel. And so it acts kind of like a dowsing rod. So if you twist your wrist a little bit, it'll swing to the left or to the right. Oh, right? that's cute. Yeah, and it's meant to be, oh, you need to find your golf ball. Whip this out and it'll point your point the way to your golf ball. And I, I thought there's no way this is being marketed as a real thing. I mean, there's obviously no way for it to work. There's, It's just a piece of metal that's on a hinge connected to a piece of plastic. There are no wires. There's no battery. There's there's nothing that could even possibly create any sort of, of uh, effect apart from the idiomotor effect, which is where we make unconscious movements. And sometimes it's based upon what we expect to happen, right? So again, like dowsers, this this is pretty much the way you, do, you explain dowsers, people who are at least uh, uh, earnestly in belief that they have this ability. Yeah. They cross over an area where they think the thing that they're looking for exists. Which is not always water. It could also be some sort of uh, mineral vein, yep. right? Yeah, it can be all sorts of different stuff. It all depends upon, like, there are people who claim that they can do all sorts of things with dowsing. And then the whatever mechanism they're using for dowsing, it may be a pair of uh, bent rods that mm-hmm. can freely swing back and forth. They kind of cr- like an L shape. Yeah, and then they'll, they'll cross, and then they'll say, oh, well, that indicates there's water here. Most of the time... It'll be something where it's a where a person believes that that's where water would be found. And they're not necessarily consciously doing this, but they unconsciously are moving their hands in such a way where the the arms cross and they say, oh, here's a hit. Okay. Same sort of thing as if this was for golf balls. Um, and so what then happens is uh, there, there was a uh, – uh, someone who decided, let's take the same idea, but let's convert it over uh, and claim that this same device can detect something much more serious than golf balls. That person was Wade L. Quattlebaum, which is a heck of a name. Oof. Quattlebaum is a heck of a name. Used to be a used car salesman. I'm going to refrain from making the carnival barker joke. Okay. But Quattlebaum said that you could pick up one of these devices that was sort of like a pistol grip device with an antenna attached to it, Mm -hmm. has a cable attached to the pistol grip that goes to a a plastic case that you would fit on your belt, and that you would take these cards that would have a signature of whatever it was you were looking for. 
right? So there's like some sort of element of the thing you're searching for. Mm. You plug it into the case, and then that was supposed to calibrate the device so that it could detect anything that fell into that category, which could include firearms, bombs, drugs. Later on, there were claims from people who were marketing the similar uh, just total nonsense that they could detect things like diseases, like HIV. So this is like radionics almost. Yeah. Which is the idea, the like the sympathetic magical thinking wherein we are, our minds, quote unquote, are part of the machine or the process, the mechanical process. I think that's what it depends upon, but mm-hmm. I don't, that's not how it was marketed. It was marketed that these were totally up and up just detectors that have no, that, that you could... In theory, just turn these, turn it on. Uh, turn mm. it on doesn't even make sense. There was nothing to turn on. Right. But you could you could just have these, like sitting on a post, for example, mm-hmm. and there's no one holding it, and that it would work just as well. That's insane. Because the idea was that, you know, hey, you got metal detectors. Sure. Metal detectors are able to detect detect metal. Why can't you have a device like this that can detect bombs and stuff? Because they weren't they weren't going forward and saying like, here's the the theory we have behind why it works. They were just marketing it as a product that works. So Quattlebaum, he ends up doing this, um, says it could detect all sorts of stuff like drugs and explosives. The FBI ends up investigating him and uh, finds that he had been selling these for hundreds or thousands of dollars a pop. And uh, he and his business associates would eventually get charged with mail fraud, but they all got acquitted in 1997. Hmm. Don't know why. But a jury acquitted them of all charges. Uh, anyway, some fe- people in the UK heard about this and they ported it over to the UK and they really ran with it. And it was actually a group of folks, possibly a ring. Like it might have been, there might have been some collaboration. Like a crime ring? Kind of. Well, okay. scam ring. Yeah. You know, they're all running the same scam. Or it could literally be that one of them heard about the scam and thought, this is a great way to make some extra dough. Sure. Uh, one of them would be James McCormick. No that relation was, to Joe. No relation to Joe. James McCormick is the one I talked about in previous episodes of Tech Stuff. And he was ultimately arrested in 2013 and sentenced to 10 years in prison and also was, was uh, fined for... Uh, the fact that he was selling these bomb devices largely in Iraq and Afghanistan. And most of the uh, the the rhetoric I've seen against him has been about, we don't even know how many people lost their lives because they were dependent upon this technology that literally could not work. There was no mechanism in it for it to work. Mm-hmm. So it's not that they just don't work. It's that there's no way they could have worked. And you know this, you, know, you were just putting these together. In fact, some of the ones he had were literally the gopher uh-huh. with a new sticker on it. So this moves this guy away from the sort of sleaze bag gradient of uh, being a con artist. Yeah, the snake oil salesman. Yeah, and into the completely reprehensible domain of being a war profiteer. Yeah, yeah. Oh, you could argue this is bordering on what what we would casually refer to as being a sociopath because they mm. have no he has no real consideration or care about what happens to the people who buy the product right um his famous detector that was 
uh, the one that was cited in most of the articles was the ADE651. So if you want to look that up, you can see what one of these looks like. Uh, there were others who also were arrested around the same time. Gary Bolton created a company called Global Technical Limited. This was a different one than McCormick's. And uh, he had the GT200. He was also arrested in 2013. He was sentenced to seven years in prison. And Samuel Tree did the same thing in the UK, and he was sentenced in 2014 to three and a half years in jail. Uh, his wife got a sentence of 300 hours of community service, so she was uh, let off fairly easy compared to the others. Yeah. Now, as recently as 2016, there were still places that were using these devices. I don't know if there still are to this day, but there were hotels in Pakistan that were using these to supposedly check people for drugs or explosives before coming into th to the hotel. And you could, again, argue that this falls into that realm of security theater, except this is a theater where anyone who's paid attention knows that the, the act is terrible. Wow. Right? Yeah. Like, it, it would be like walking up to somebody at, uh, at an airport security, and they're literally just holding a wooden dowel. And they say, well, I need to scan you for any potential weapons. And you look at them and you're like, are you going to hit me? Like, no, no, I'm just going to run this up and down your body, and if uh, if the wood vibrates, then I know. Like, okay, well, this literally is doing no one any good. Right. I agree completely. Uh, our last example is a fairly recent one. In fact, it's a story that's still unfolding, and that mm. is of Theranos. Were you familiar with Theranos? No, I was not. Not until you had told me a little bit about it. Yeah. Off -air Snaps his fingers, and immediately, like, half the people are gone. Hey. <laughs> Hey, spoiler. Spoiler. You're supposed to say spoiler in front of the spoiler. Okay. 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 Uh, it's just a way of trying to make some light of a what is it really a very serious uh, and a very problem. dark thing. So yeah. So tell us a little bit about Elizabeth Holmes. So Elizabeth Holmes uh, was determined early, early on that she mm. wanted to be a businesswoman, a successful businesswoman. From every interview I've read, every report I've read. She comes across as an incredibly motivated uh, woman with uh, a lot of drive and a lot of determination, uh, perhaps more than is good for a person. But she, when she was going to Stanford, got an idea for a company, dropped out by age 19 to work on this company. She had already launched it while she was in college, but decided to concentrate on it full time when she was 19. Mm -hmm. And uh, the company was going to produce a uh, a wearable medical device that would monitor a patient's blood and then administer medication on an as-needed basis. So imagine wearing something that is checking your blood sugar and uh, can automatically administer insulin, that kind of thing, mm -hmm. sort of along those lines. But um, she then kind of evolved that idea and decided to try and create a technology that would allow you to run a whole battery of medical tests off a single drop of blood drawn from the tip of a finger. So you wouldn't have to draw blood intravenously through like, you know, your arm or whatever. Which a lot of people hate. Yeah, especially if you're like, like I've had to go and give like two or three vials of blood in order for them to run tests on me for, for certain things, you know? Yeah. And it's, you know, yeah, not a lot of people are, are keen to do that. So if you were able to get that same amount of information just from one drop of blood, that would be amazing. And so she said that she was working on this technology. She had hired the right people to uh, to really uh, develop it. 
And she really did hire people. I mean, she had people really working on trying to make this a thing. It's not like this was all a scam from the get-go. She really was trying to get this to work. Mm -hmm. Uh, She got hundreds of millions of dollars in investments. And she decided that she wanted to uh, emulate Steve Jobs and to have a company that was built on secrecy, siloed departments that were not allowed to talk to one another. She was supposed to be one of the only people who really knew what was going on, right? So mm-hmm. she's she's the she's the all-knowing. She's the omniscient person. She and uh, the president of the company, Sonny Balwani, who uh, was in a relationship with her at the time. They're the only connective tissue. Right. So they, they know everything that's going on. And they decide that uh, they're going to keep getting investment money. They're going to keep pushing for this. They're going to uh, talk up their technology, even though it's not ready yet. Their their staff is telling them, hey, uh, the technology we're developing, uh, it's great and all, except it's not reliable. It's not it's not where it needs to be. We need more time. It's uh, They had a testing device called the Edison. They said that its failure rate was very high. It was not reliable at all. They were, meanwhile, already opening up wellness centers and partnering with companies like Walgreens to put out test kits. Mm-hmm. And turned out that uh, she was using a lot of standard medical equipment to actually run these tests, not the company's equipment, not Theranos's equipment, because Theranos's equipment wasn't reliable at all. But because she was only drawing this tiny, you know, the kits only asked for this tiny amount of blood, these other off-the-shelf devices that had been used in standard practices for, for years, they frequently would fail too just because there wasn't enough of a sample there. They weren't designed for a drop of blood that often had to be diluted with other liquids so that you would have a sample size large enough for the machinery to actually run the tests. Mm-hmm. So you had this company that was making huge amounts of money through investors and was offering up a product in stores in wellness centers, and they uh, were running their actual tests on other people's equipment, but claiming that they were using their own. And eventually the floor fell out from under them. Uh, it took some time for that to happen. It, it, so she she was running this business for more than, you know, eight or nine years. Uh, it wasn't until there was a, a, an FDA a complaint that was happening in like 2015 uh, they started to investigate the company. They received reports that the medical tests were not accurate at all. Uh, the Wall Street Journal investigated them, and mm-hmm. the report out of that said that that's where it was revealed that they weren't even using their own equipment to actually process the tests. In 2016, the SEC and the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services also started to investigate the company. Uh, by July of 2016, Holmes received a ban that stated she would not be allowed to work in the lab testing industry for two years. So in October, Theranos shut down its lab operations and its wellness centers, but the company continues to exist to this day. Uh, the SEC then charged Holmes and Sonny and Theranos with fraud in March 2018. Holmes ultimately gave up financial and voting control of her company. She also agreed to pay a half-million-dollar fine and return nearly 19 million shares of stock. She also said that she would not lead a publicly traded company for 10 years, but Theranos isn't a publicly traded company. It's a private company. So she remained as CEO of Theranos for the time being. Uh, 
On June 15th, 2018, she finally stepped down as, as CEO. Sonny had been ousted as president in 2016. She had kicked him out of the company already. Mm-hmm. So in June 15th, 2018, she steps down and she gets uh, indicted by a grand jury on charges of wire fraud, as did Sonny. And so now we're in the wait and see phase of how, if this goes to trial, mm-hmm. you know, whether or not it gets settled or if it goes to trial, if it does go to trial, is she found guilty or innocent? If she is found guilty, she could face up to 20 years in prison and $250,000 of fines plus restitution on every count she is found guilty. And there are 11 counts against her. So possibly really bad news. And mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's all, terrible news for anyone who worked for the company who was legitimately trying to make this a reality. Absolutely. Uh, But the feeling I get from the reports I read is that she had, she was overly confident in thinking that they were going to be able to deliver upon their promise as long as they could just keep running. Kind of a fake it till you make it. Yeah. Like if if we can just keep, if we could just keep the illusion going a little bit longer, then reality is going to catch up and we're going to be able to do what we said we were doing all along and everything will be fine and no one will be Mm -hmm. the wiser. Uh, that's the feeling I get when I was reading a lot of this stuff. But there were also a lot of really negative reports about her behavior in general and uh, like crazy security details. She hired her brother onto the company despite the fact that he didn't really have any any uh, uh, experience in the field mm-hmm. at all. Uh, and then he went on to apparently bring on a whole bunch of his frat brothers to work for the company. They were called the Theranobros, I think it was. Therabros? Therabros, that's what it was, Therabros. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, not a great story. But again, uh, one of those where a lot of people who were more knowledgeable in the field said, being able to test just a single drop of blood from the tip of a finger for all of these different potential diseases and conditions seems too good to be true. Right. It seems like this is a big, big ask and that it's something that uh, is not likely to be possible. And as it turns out, they were right, it seems. And there are so many similar examples of scams and hoaxes like this. We we could spend an hour easily just on the the strange claims about alternative power for automobiles. Oh, yeah. You know? Yeah, like one cup of water will make this car go 600 miles. Right, that right. That kind of thing. Don't worry about how. Yeah. Just give or, me the water. Or there's numerous uh, crowdfunding campaigns where people, and, and I kind of covered that in a previous episode mm-hmm. about crowdfunding campaigns where things were promised that sounded pretty spectacular and it turned out they were too spectacular Mm -hmm. to exist so valuable lessons to learn um but this this is why uh again why skepticism and critical thinking are so important it's because not only can it save you from perhaps getting swept up into the enthusiasm around something that doesn't have any substance to it Mm -hmm. it could potentially save your life or the life of someone you know if you look into something and you say, that doesn't sound like it's all on the up and up and this is a very serious issue. So maybe we need to be more careful about it. Um, I mean, that's, that's very valuable information. I mean, that's why these charges against, uh, homes are so serious because again, like the bomb detection kits, we're talking life or death kind of situations here. People are looking to find out if they are, uh, Uh, you know, if they have a specific condition or a disease and if the test comes back negative, but in fact they do have it, 
then they could be wasting time that otherwise they might be able to use treating whatever that is. True. So, uh, yeah, or they might get a false positive, which causes them undue stress while they try and chase down something that doesn't exist. I mean, it goes both ways with that. So anyway... Uh, kind of a bummer to end on, but I think it's important to talk <laughs> about because it's, it it's, it really drives home the point I was trying to make. Now, Ben, before I let you go, are there any any of these that are your particular favorite, or or do you do you have any other ones that you were thinking of? Like Jonathan, I really wish you had talked about this one. Oh, I think we mentioned some really cool ones: the water powered car, yeah. the uh, Orgo itself, yeah. which is maybe something that you and I can dive into on stuff they don't want you to know. One of these days, you, I'm going to have to have you in here and we're going to talk about engrams. Engrams. Oh, that's going to be, that'll probably be the last episode of Tech Stuff. Is that the, uh, now engrams, correct me if I'm off base here, mm-hmm. is that the personality test that, it might be. that tells you Could uh, be. based on four letters, four out of eight letters? Uh, what in, you are in grams? No, that would be that'd be the Myers Briggs. Oh, that's test. what I was thinking about. Okay. In grams are where you hold a couple little metal uh, poles and you're asked questions about your personality, and the person on the other side is possibly going to invite you to be part of a big organization. Oh yeah, yeah, dude. Let's let's go to court together. Okay, All right. <laughs> that's a date. All right. Well, if you want to listen to Ben Bolin, uh, and you should, because he's fascinating. You should definitely check out his shows. He's got uh, stuff they don't want you to Mm -hmm. know where you can learn all about various types of uh, weird ideas, many of which have incredible validity to them, sometimes not in the way that you first expect. Uh, Then you could also listen to Ridiculous History. Mm -hmm. And occasionally I'll pop on there and be really obnoxious. So we – I want to add this. Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan makes multiple appearances on both of those shows. Thanks for classing up the joint, by the way. Happy to do it. And uh, we have a running gag with him be with his alter ego, which we mentioned at the top of the show, the Quister. And we received some questions from people that essentially said, "So what's so? Is it really a secret identity? Because we introduce him." By we introduce you by your full name yeah. and then just add Quister. Jonathan Strickland, the, <laughs> the Quister. Quister. So yeah. uh, if you are hearing this, then you are also in on his secret identity. Yeah. And we we invite you to check out uh, one of our favorite segments of Ridiculous History. And thank you for having me on the show, Jonathan. Absolutely. And for anyone who doesn't know yet, I would I would like to get the scoop on these uh, new shows I've been hearing about you working on through the grapevine. It's episode 1001. Why not? So we have a show coming out soon. Uh, soon probably being within uh, by the end of the summer for 2018 mm-hmm. called The Brink. And this is a show that is all about really pivotal moments in businesses and, and in entrepreneurs' lives where things could have gone one way or another, and because of a tough decision, mm-hmm. it unfolded a specific way. I like to call it, say, it's it's when someone's taking a bold step and they don't know yet if there's going to be ground on the other side. Oh, that's cool. That's well written. That idea of of the brink. Mm-hmm. So that that's should be going up toward the end of the summer. And then a little bit later, there's going to be something totally different where it's going to be a very geeky, geek culture podcast that I'm doing with a friend of mine. Actually, 
I had been doing with a friend of mine for quite some time. And uh, How Stuff Works said, hey, why don't we uh, rework that show and bring it over here? So in the fall of 2018, not sure when yet, mm -hmm. I just know it's going to happen, launch in the fall, uh, we're going to launch Large Nerdron Collider. Mm -hmm. And my friend Ariel and I will sit down and talk about the geekiest news out there and give context to it. And a uh, uh, very different type of show than this one, but a lot of fun. And I think if you consider yourself a geek or a fan of stuff that is in geek culture, whether it's the, you know, it's ultimately all owned by Disney. We know that. Right. It's Marvel, Star Wars, yeah. Disney films, whatever. Yeah. Uh, pretty soon, 21st Century Fox, then I think Disney just bought my cat while I was I, at work. I'm pretty, certain that, I'm pretty certain that everything I own is actually leased from Disney at this point. Also, behind the scenes, and I'm sure, long-time listeners, I'm sure you know this, uh, Jonathan is a huge Disney fan. I'm a Disney freak. But Large Nerdron Collider is not just about Disney, so Fantastic. Just, just so you know. Oh, and uh, so so congratulations on these on these new shows, and congratulations, we're, we're old friends. Jonathan, you and I have hung out for the better part of a decade now, which yeah. is kind of spooky. Yeah. Congratulations, uh, profound congratulations on reaching not just episode 1000, but 1001. And yeah. here's to, here's to another, at least 999. Yeah. Probably hit those in a couple of years at the rate that are increasing the number that I'm putting out per week. Mm -hmm. But it's job security, right? <laughs> there we go. There we go. Well, guys, if you have any suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, send me a message. The email address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com or drop me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle there is techstuffhsw. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram. And yes, Mr. Ben Bolin. I'm, I'm raising my hand for Jonathan because I want to return a, uh, a long overdue favor. Oh. If you, you were, if, if yeah. there's something on, if there's something on this episode or any past or future episodes, of tech stuff that you found objectionable. If you have a bone to pick or a nit to pick, uh, please feel free to write specifically to the tech stuff complaint department, which is ben.bolin at howstuffworks.com. I owe you. I have, oh, I have to make this right. That feels so good. I can't tell you how many times I've opened <laughs> up an email and thought, why the heck am I getting this? All right, guys. Well, that wraps it up for this episode. Hope you enjoyed it. Looking forward to episode 1002, and I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 